Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour with me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. I greet you from a very cold South Dakota tonight. So it was it was snowy. It was windy there as well, and we we did that for like a week, and then we went from windy blowing snow where to where I literally blew my driveway out probably four times to like now we're like I think the low tonight is going to be forty below zero here. Yeah, we we haven't hit quite that low, but uh, I was out with my dog, who by the way loves it. He he's a, <laughs> a he's up awesome. to his chest. Yeah, he's up to his chest in the snow out there. We've got we've got at least up up to past my shin as as a regular like snow in my backyard. He's out there romping around, and I can feel my nose starting to like the nose hair starting to freeze. Right, like oh, what it takes to 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 really battle humanity, or well, humans to battle nature. Really, in this part of the country, is what it amounts to, Steve. It's uh, yeah. We're my wife was saying that we're expected to drop down to minus forty this week as well. Well, it'll be warmer on on Mars than it than it will be on. <laughs> we'll carry on. Hey, well, let's get into some feedback. Our first email comes in from Griffin. Griffin writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks again for taking the time to put out a great show. It's the highlight of my Tuesday. A caller last week had some questions about backing up and processing email. Backing up email from a server is a common issue. I had a situation last year where a friend had exceeded the available space for their Gmail account and needed to free up some space. As I recall, he had something like 50,000 emails that had to be processed. He wanted a way to organize, backup, delete, despam, etc. the email account. The CLI solution we came up with was to use Fetchmail and Procmail. A good brief introduction and a tutorial might be, and then he links to easierubuntu.blogspot.com. The excellent documentation for Fetchmail is at, and then he links to fetchmail.info. There are many examples of documentation and tutorials out there for something using Fetchmail and Procmail. These are very powerful and flexible tools for processing email. The only limitation is your imagination. And you end up with a one-liner, something like fetchmail tack m slash user slash bin slash procmail tack d and then percentage sign t. He links to Linux.com, which has a tutorial on processing your email with procmail. Thanks, Griffin. So I guess, Steve, my first question, have you played with any of these tools? What do you think of them? Uh, both procmail and fetchmail are old. But that doesn't mean that they're they're bad, right? Mm-hmm. Email hasn't changed fundamentally in quite a long time. So definitely use Fetchmail uh, in the past. It has been a long time, but it's been around for a bit. I'd say, sure, that's one way to do it. Um, I don't really have any comment other than it worked the last time that I used it. I uh, there's there's occasionally a time where I will fire up a server and I'll be like, how is this thing generating email? 
and it turns out it's just using PostFix underneath. Like it's just, it's hey, it's there, it works, why not? So some of these older email tools or some of these tools that have been built in and, and been around in Linux for a very long time are still very useful utilities that can be used. We just have decided not to use them or we've moved on to the more fancy, the more shiny sometimes. Yep, but fundamentally the technology underneath has, has largely stayed the same. Our second email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I'll get right to my question. I took your advice, and I got a cheap laptop off of eBay. I have a System76 Oryx Pro laptop, but I needed something with great battery life. And not so freaking heavy. So I decided on a Lenovo X270, which boasts a 24-hour battery on Windows, and I figured I'd get half of that on Linux. I'd be happy as well. It's an i7 with a 7600U, 16 gigs of RAM. As expected, the batteries were shot and bubbled. One battery is external and the other internal. Both of them, end of life. I replaced both batteries and I got a new charger for less than $100. So far, so good. I installed a Samsung 980 Pro and installed Pop! OS. And it flies! That is, until I unplug the charger. And CPU throttles. It's so bad, it's unusable. It takes forever to turn on and turn off. Open Firefox. You name it, it takes forever. It feels like you're back in 2001 on Windows 2000. I looked into the BIOS and set the battery performance to the performance setting instead of the balanced or battery life. That didn't help. I turned on the setting within Pop! OS for performance instead of balanced. That didn't help. As soon as you plug in the charger, it flies again. I ran across this thread from Reddit, which says it's a common issue, and they were experiencing this on Windows. So it seems to be a hardware issue, which was narrowed down to the external battery. I unplugged the external battery, so the laptop is running on just the internal battery, and voila, works without the charger. Zero throttling. Plug it back in, the battery, and it bogs back down. Also, you always say on your show that Lenovo has a setting in the BIOS, which presets a lot of things to Linux, but I'm not finding this. Any idea? Different battery? OEM only battery? Thanks, Corey. So a couple things. The Linux versus Windows BIOS, which I'll, I'll, I'll address that up front, that is something that came with later ThinkPads. It was not available on the X270. Now, you're in luck, Corey, because my house is like the collection of where Lenovo sends X270s to come die because my kids chew through them. Um, so I've got a lot of X270s that I can do some testing for you on this. I will tell you, I have not seen this problem. Um, and again, I have probably uh, the most amount of experience with, with an X270 of, of maybe any laptop ever. Uh, I carried one myself for years. When I, when I got to the end of my rope, I still hung on to it because it was the smallest laptop I could find. And the battery life was practically, I mean, it would go days um, with that, without dying. And it has a wired Ethernet port, which that's getting hard to find. So um, I, I'll do a little bit of digging for you. I, I've not seen this before. I will tell you, I've had extremely bad luck with aftermarket batteries in ThinkPads. Um, they have all sorts of weird behavior. They don't hold the full life. They don't recognize by the charger sometimes. I've, I mean, you name it, I've seen a weird issue. So my immediate, my gut reaction is, hey, maybe try a different battery, particularly an external battery, if it's not negotiating right or not talking right or something like that. Steve, you had, and again, that's not any sort of like really great troubleshooting that I've narrowed down the root cause and really understand. I'm, I mean, I'm stabbing in the dark and seeing what sticks to the wall. Steve, you kind of had some ideas as well of what he might try. Yeah. So I've noticed this behavior on a, on a laptop that has only one battery when the battery is starting to drain pretty close to fully the way down. Like maybe at 20% or whatever. So if I'm playing 
if I'm playing on battery, like playing some game on a battery, I notice this starting to trigger between, I don't know, 30% and lower where the frames just fall through the floor. And part of this is because the, the operating system is trying its best to eke out the longest battery. So it just doesn't shut off right away. Mm -hmm. So when Noah and I were kind of talking about this before, I was kind of theorizing and, and I'll stress, it's just a theory, but it seems conceivable that there's some sensor to recognize if the battery is in the bay, but if the machine is having a hard time talking to the external battery, the, it is possible that it there's some sort of math that's happening where it takes the first battery, let's say the first battery has two hours and the, the external battery has four hours and it says, okay, I have six hours worth of battery life, but oh no, I can no longer talk to the to the battery that's got four hour battery life, it must be dead. Mm. Uh, and then it's kicking into that throttling mode because instead of having, you know, a full charge at, um, with the internal battery, you're, you're seeing yourself saying, I've only got a third of my battery life left out of the total of whatever I think might be there. Um, and that would mirror the experience that I've had on laptops that have a single battery in them. It's a theory. Logic seems to fit, but I actually have no idea. Either way, though, the answer here is the same as we've got to swap out the battery and try it with a different one. See if you experience the same problem. Um, you know, it kind of goes back to that whole, that one doesn't work. Let's try a different one. See if that one works. Redneck logic. So, um, yeah, I'll do a, I'll do a little bit of digging for you and I'll, and I'll see if I can get back to you. Uh, we'll conduct a, a little bit of an experiment. Our third email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, hi, no and Steve, you guys often recommend Synology and access cameras for security camera solutions. Do you have any experience running Synology surveillance station on the AMD boxes versus the Intel based boxes? Does the fact that the Intel has QuickSync make the Intel boxes a better choice as an NVR? I'm hoping to run six 4K cameras, and I'm looking at these two boxes. And he links to the DS1621 and the DX1621XS. Um, in general, I don't have any experience with the AMD. Okay, All of the ones that I've used are all uh, Intel-based. That said, also, my experience with most things that are either AMD or Intel I have a better experience on AMD than Intel, so I wouldn't for a second uh, hesitate to purchase the AMD box. Um, if you wanted more information, what I might do is reach out to Synology. I found their support to be absolutely stellar, and you can tell them, here's the cameras I'm looking to use, here's the specific models I'm looking to do, and they actually do all of their testing with Axis cameras when they're building surveillance stations, so they'll be able to come back and tell you, oh, that's going to work, work really well, here's the model that's going to be very the, the, the best supported and going to give you the features that you want, those sorts of things. Steve, your thoughts? So as a general rule, I don't have any experience with the cameras specifically, but what I can speak to is a little bit of the video encoding from from encoding decoding perspective. Yeah. The the AMD side of things, they do have an answer to QuickSync. Um, it's kind of weak. And again, this is not related to video cameras because while I assume it's a similar situation, I don't have any direct experience. My gut tells me that QuickSync is probably going to be the better way to go because it has the widest level of support in terms of um, the most people who are trying to do the hardware decoding are either doing it on a graphics card, like an external graphics card, in which case you're not really worried about QuickSync or other, right? You're using whatever graphics card you had, or you're going Intel because QuickSync has, has essentially cornered the market's not exactly the right phrase, but it is by far and away the most dominant for doing hardware decoding. So my suspicion is 
the Intel stuff is going to be better tested, even if the AMD stuff does work. Okay. So, again, I might just reach out to Synology, see what they think. They're ultimately the ones that are going to provide support if you have a problem. So it might not be a bad place to start. Our fourth email comes in from Peter. Peter writes in and says, Hi, no one, Steve. In episode 316, a listener asked about managing Firefox and different profiles. Isn't it as simple to create different shortcuts to start Firefox with different profiles? As documented here, you can easily create profiles and use the profile name as a startup parameter for Firefox. So finally, the entire data, plugins, all of it will be stored in separate profiles. You can take a look and then he links to docs.telemetry.mozilla.org. The easiest way would be to start a fresh Firefox with the parameter TACTAC Profile Manager and then create various profiles. Then I would set the default profile to start when starting Firefox without the parameters. Finally, create shortcuts to start Firefox with TAC, no, TAC, remote, and then TAC, TAC, profile with the profile name to start with the respective profile. I think with this, each profile can be managed separately and easily backed up if you like just the backup profile folder. And you can use whatever plugins, credentials, sync, etc. separately. There is no remote parameter. Make sure that the new instance of Firefox is opened. It implies a new instance. I hope my thoughts are true since I was not able to test it, but it sounds logical to me. This is really the same behavior as other Mozilla software. Thunderbird, kind regards. Peter. So indeed, I've never applied it in this particular way, but something that happens all the freaking time, like, I mean, multiple times a week, is you'll get a client and they'll say, I just bought a new computer and I want to move my thing over there and I need all my bookmarks and my passwords and all my stuff. And how, how do I get all that? Okay, well, just back up your profile. We just move it over here and you fire it back up. Oh, that's great. All the stuff right where I expect it. Good, 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 good. And, and we're able to do that. And so it's, it does. It stands to reason that if you can do that and... I do something similar with Element where I launch different profiles so that I can log into different accounts. This stands to reason you could do that with Firefox. I, while it would technically work, and certainly if you wanted to manage your client load that way, that's fine. It seems like an awful lot of work to set up, Steve. I wouldn't do it. Um, you might be able to manage it for, say, two or three. Um, but once you get four, five, six, seven, mm. uh, you're first of all you've got a lot of links that you should be generating um you you almost need to write a script with a parameter to just load the right profile that's probably the most scalable way of doing it and even then i would be a little afraid of the profile profiles getting all mucked up i've i've had that before where i i end up having some really strange problem and the solution was to nuke the profile um and so i would be afraid after going to all of this trouble that you know, my profile is the thing causing me trouble. Well, good news for him. I mean, he's got like 14 of them that if he if one doesn't work, he'd just <laughs> jump in. No, but really, it seems very cumbersome. At the, at, at the risk of repeating ourselves, can you go over again the extension that you had recommended and then since took your own advice and really dug into this week? Yeah, so there's a, a Firefox plugin from Mozilla that's called Multi-Account Containers. And what I, I, I really like this. Essentially, it allows you to create a profile for the different type, and not a Firefox profile, like literally a, a container profile for all of the different types of activities you might want to have. So like by default, they have things like personal and banking, work and shopping and stuff like that. But as I was managing a, a game account for my two sons and myself, all three of us have the same game. Uh, I started to use this quite heavily because I found it a real pain to have three different browsers open 
or trying to use the private browsing window or, or anything like that. And what I like about this is you can pick a color and a an icon for each one of these things, like the banking by default, for example, has a green dollar sign. And this icon plus the text banking shows up inside of your URL bar to let you know where you are, like which container you're working inside of. And every time you open a new tab, the tab itself is colored with a line relating to the color that the profile is. So like banking would have, like the tab would have a green line across the top of it. So you can easily identify them. And I, I found this useful for multiple things in the past week. And I, I've found since put this on a bunch of the computers that I have, it's now part of my standard browser extension that I go look for. Again, you can find all of this in the show notes. We'll have it for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. PZIP 9.0 has been released with improved speed and memory usage and a few new options. Debian Linux 11.6 Bullseye has been released with 78 security updates, 69 bug fixes, and is available with a variety of Linux desktop environments. Linux Mint 21.1, which is based on Ubuntu 22.04 LTS, is now available. The XFCE 4.18 desktop environment is out, and it comes with improvements to the file manager, panel, plugins, and more. Caden 22.12 has been released. Firefox 108 is now available for download. This release comes with web MIDI and import maps enabled by default, a new keyboard shortcut for the process manager, and other improvements. Firefox 109 will introduce a new unified extensions button for managing your add-ons. The open source DAW Ardor has released version 7.2 and adds support for compressed AUG Opus audio and a new MIDI input port. The new version also includes MIDI Learn for Q-slots, importing of lyrics from MIDI files, and other improvements. In the latest Steam client released this month, Valve has fixed the new big picture mode with NVIDIA GPUs and has also included a lot of other fixes. Razor Genie, a QT app for configuring Razor devices on Linux, has just released version 1.0. The mobile Linux distro Postmark OS 22.12 has added support for two more devices, the Fairphone 4 and the Samsung Galaxy Tab 2, the 10.1-inch version. Linux 6.2 will include XFAT updates to improve performance when creating files and directories. Related to the 6.2 release, Intel LAM, or Linear Address Masking, is a feature Intel originally detailed in 2020 and has been in development with plans for merging for the 6.2 release. Torvalds, however, is unhappy with the kernel implementation and is of the opinion that some kernel changes for supporting it are fundamentally broken, and as such has rejected the PR. The GNU Linux Libre 6.1 kernel has been announced and adjusts several drivers that needed deblobbing for those that want 100% Libre kernel that has removed all non-free components. Linux Libre's Freedora effort to free Fedora has also come to an end. The project's goal was to ensure that a fully free software kernel was installed and that no non-free packages were installed on the system. In security news, NuGet, PyPy, and NPM ecosystems were the target of a new campaign that resulted in over 144,000 packages being published by unknown threat actors. Of the 144,294 phishing-related packages that were detected, over 136,000 were published on NuGet, over 7,000 on PyPy, and 212 on NPM. The offending libraries have since been unlisted or taken down. In hardware news, Pine64 has announced the PineTab 2 Linux tablet, with up to 8GB RAM and 128GB of storage. 
Siemens Digital Industries has ported its Linux-based so-called Flex OS to the RISC-V open specification instruction set. In a technical paper titled Hawk 5, a heterogeneous ultra-low-power Linux-capable RISC-V SOC has been published by researchers at the University of Bologna. Hawk 5 has been implemented with Global Foundry's 22mm FDX technology and is a fully digital, ultra-low-cost SOC running a 64-bit Linux software stack with OpenMP host-to-PMCA offload with a power envelope of just 250 milliwatts. And in other news, in early 2017, Microsoft open-sourced their DirectX shader compiler, and it's been possible to build on Linux since. As of this week, Microsoft has begun providing official Linux binaries. Microsoft Research has announced that it will discontinue development of Soundscape, a navigational app for visually impaired people. However, the company plans to make the app's code open source on January 3rd of 2023. When Microsoft decided to kill the Atom text editor to favor Visual Studio Code, the community sprang into action and has been working to continue its development. The result? The Pulsar editor. A community build for it is already available. However, there seems to be a new version that aims to bring feature parity with the original Atom and introduce modern features and updated architectures. Intel Labs has collaborated with the Computer Vision Center in Spain, Kajali in China, and the Technical University of Munich to develop the Simulator for Photorealistic Embodied AI Research, or SPEAR. The result is a highly realistic open-source simulation platform that accelerates the training and validation of embodied AI systems in indoor domains. The solution can be downloaded under the open-source MIT license. Meta has released an open-source tool that they claim can scan for terrorist content, and that companies can also use the free tool to remove child exploitation content, as well as other abusive posts. At the same time, however, more than a year after Meta asked the Oversight Board to weigh in on its cross-check rules, the group has finally published its findings. The board found that the program, which creates a separate content moderation project for high-profile users, prioritizes the company's business over the rights of its users. Open-source technology leader Brankus has developed Brankus Open, a first-of-its-kind open-source license for the next generation of banking-as-a-service and open finance software. Foundation Devices has announced that it raised $7 million in seed funding to double down on its sovereign computing platform, which it says is empowering users to reclaim their digital sovereignty. The company's main product, Passport, costs $260 and looks like a mid-2000s phone, but is in fact a hardware crypto wallet built with security and mobile-first approach in mind. Just a few months after buying fellow robotic software firm Vicarious, Alphabet-owned Intrinsic has acquired several divisions within Open Robotics, the company behind widely used robotic software packages like Gazebo and the robotic operating system. Specifically, Intrinsic is buying Open Source Robotics Corporation, the for-profit arm of Open Robotics, and Open Source Robotics Corporation Singapore. Open Robotics' non-profit arm, the Open Source Robotics Foundation, won't be impacted by the deal outside of several new executive appointments, according to Open Robotics co-founder and former CEO Brian Gerke. The global open source services market is expected to grow from an estimated value of $25.6 billion in 2022 to $54.1 billion by 2027, according to a new report by Markets & Markets. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which creates resilient ecosystems for cloud-native software, has received an open-source project called DevSpace as a gift from Loft Labs, a provider of developer tooling and multi-tenancy solutions for Kubernetes. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation Sandbox will give the project a neutral location to receive contributions from the Cloud Native community outside of it and to take advantage of vendor-independent governance. And the Linux Foundation has announced the formation of the Overture Maps Foundation, a collaborative effort to develop interoperable open map data as a shared asset that can strengthen mapping services worldwide. 
An elderly Colorado woman is suing the Denver police detective who ordered a SWAT raid on her house after it was falsely pinged by Apple's Find My App as a location of several stolen items, including six firearms and old iPhone, according to a lawsuit filed on Wednesday. The complaint contends that uh, Officer Stab uh, affidavit violated Johnson's rights by affording the state constitution to be free of unreasonable search and seizure. The affidavit allegedly lacked probable cause that evidence of a crime could be found at Johnson's home since it was based only on the unverified and vague ping by the Apple's Find My App, which is used to track Apple devices. The area that was highlighted on the app as a possible location for the phone, for example, spanned six properties and four blocks according to the image of the complaint it was also featured on the affidavit uh, on the affidavit according to the filing officers damaged johnson's home as they kept her sitting in a police car even after she told them there was nothing stolen in their house so uh, you know steve i, I want to bring this and i wanted to bring this up on the show because this is super frustrating to me so this the, the, the short story is this guy is in this hotel and he's parked there with his truck and the truck gets stolen and the hotel sees the truck drive out of the runs the the little arm from the parking gate and and takes off and so they go and look and and sure enough the guy who owns the truck is is staying at the hotel so they ring his room and they say hey uh why did you drive your truck through our parking thing and rip our arm off and he goes i didn't do any such thing my truck has just been stolen they go stolen you should report it to the police so he does he calls the police files a police report the police report file says what's in the car, and he says, well, I got two drones, like $4,000 of cash, and this iPhone. iPhone, they say. Is it on? Well, as a matter of fact, it is. Can you find it? Where's the last time the location pinged? So based on that, only that, and nothing else, not even to include the police taking the time to actually verify the iPhone even belongs to the dude, they get a search warrant for this old lady's house, 77-year-old retired postal worker's house. So they show up in their SWAT vehicle and they get out and they're like, hey, yeah, we suspect that you stole this truck with a bunch of stuff. Nope, didn't steal anything, guys. This is my house. I live here. I was just enjoying a peaceful afternoon when you showed up. Yeah, well, uh, we're going to have to search your house. Have at it. You know, I don't have anything to hide. Go search my house. So they go through this poor woman's house and instead of just searching the house and going, yup, geez, there's a, there's, there's a suspicious lack of a gigantic truck and there doesn't appear to be any firearms and there are no drones and there's no $4,000 of cash. And oh, wouldn't you know what the iPhone doesn't hear either. None of that. Instead, they trash this lady's house, straight up trash this lady's house. And then they get to the back garage. They're like, yeah, we got to get in there. And she goes, okay, here's how you get into the garage. They're like, no, we don't want to do that. They go get a battering ram and smash this poor woman's door out. You should see the pictures of this place. It's unbelievable. So after they get done just annihilating this poor woman's house, to include damaging a figurine that was given to her as a gift that she'd had for many years, they go to leave and she goes, well, um, who's going to pay for the damage to my door? Who's going to pay for the damage to, you know, you they smash the ceiling in so they could get to the attic and that kind of stuff. They're like, yeah, we don't know who's going to do that. Uh, have a great day. And then they leave. Uh, so unsurprisingly, this lady is not happy, like not happy to the max and has filed a lawsuit. And I pulled a copy of the affidavit as well as the um, the original search warrant just so I could kind of go through it. 
location tracking is starting to get out of hand. You know, these things were there for your benefit. You paid for the phone. You pay for the service. And so it is supposed to be a function of convenience for you. But I think what this case exemplifies extraordinarily well is given the right opportunity, they don't have a problem using that technology, even your own technology, against you. And so this is going to this is going to go to court and undoubtedly that it's going to come into question how accurate or what really does the court say about what location tracking can be used on things like iPhones. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some of this come up with AirTags, too, as there's a bunch of stalking incidents that have 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 kind of come about that. But my question to you is, where do you think we should draw the line for police to get search warrants? Because I'll tell you what. I don't think we should be drawing the line to get search warrants based off of just location pinging. It's too broad. It was A, it was never designed for that. B, it isn't necessary. I mean, the guy could have, and obviously did, just drove by her house. That doesn't mean that he or she is residing there. The person who stole the vehicle or stole the phone just happened to be by the same geographical location, this poor woman's house. And ended up causing a severe, she doesn't feel safe in her home anymore. And she's living with her kids now for the time being until they can get all of this straightened out. So just an absolutely horrific, uh, really crappy story. Made it to the mainstream news all over national news the past week. Um, And yeah, she's filing charges against that detective who filed the affidavit. Again, based nothing on a screenshot from somebody going, yeah, I think this is where my iPhone is. Um, Steve, your thoughts? I think there's a bunch of things that are questionable here like for example it may be a little bit ageist but like once you've knocked on the person's house and right. you've searched the house <laughs> to find this lady like i, I watched the uh watch the interview she she's not particularly mobile like right. i mean she's not immobile yeah but at the same time like you think that this lady <laughs> got in a vehicle drove erratically through an arm and then drove home right and then and then was somehow the mil- yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's some allow, allowance for common sense, I think. Like, there there should be, okay, we shouldn't clear them because, mm-hmm. all, you know, recently in Canada, there is a, a 73-year-old man who went and killed six people that sat on the board of his condo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the stuff happens and you sure. can't just clear people. But at the same time, like, if they're off, like if they're cooperating, yeah, it's likely that you don't have to go smash things, right? Um, you know, and and you know, when I when I was going through, I read through the um, through the report as the police were going through her house, and they were like, yeah, you know, we needed to get to the attic, so we stood on this handrail and snapped it off, and like just very, very completely unprofessional, very, you know, un courteous things that if you're going to be in somebody else's home, like, fine, I get it. You have a job to do. I get it. We all want you to find the stolen property. We all don't have sympathy for the dirtbag that went and took this guy's truck. He's a bad person. She is a bad person. Whoever it is is a bad person. And that person should be caught. I get that. Could we try to exercise just a modicum of respect for somebody else until you actually know if they've committed a crime for crying out loud? Um, It's just uh, like what, what gets me is like, Okay, like this is not a child abduction case. There's right. no there's there's no life threatening thing. It's stuff. The, the the owner has been detained, like she's in the she's in the back of the SWAT car and you know, like there's there's no indication that there's any physical threat to the officers, which means that they're not having to like 
go like rip through the house on a mad dash because they're on some sort of time limit. So mm-hmm. like there's that on top of the fact that it is completely possible that a person driving down the road discovers that there's a phone in the vehicle they just stole and chucks it out the window. Exactly. Or hands right? it to some homeless person and goes, here, here's a phone. And then that person goes and walks past this lady's house. Or I, I don't know, a number, any number of possibilities that don't include a 77-year-old woman stealing a truck, somehow vanishing the truck and getting back into her home. It's just, it's that whole, like, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yes. Like, there should be, some, like, that. this is automatically treating as if guilty with, right. no, with no real anything. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I just I wanted to draw some attention to it. I wanted to highlight it and I want to and I hope this lady gets justice because I I think this is pretty terrible. Elon is in the news. So Twitter Thursday evening suddenly suspended several high profile journalists who cover the platform. And Elon Musk is one of the richest peoples in the world. Now, one of the things that they were doing was they were using this account called Elon Jet, which takes publicly available information and then retweets the exact location of Elon's jet. He described it as, and I'm using his words here, basically assassination coordinates and said, you're not going to dox me. You can disagree with me. You can disagree with my actions. You can disagree with the way that I'm going forward with this platform, but you cannot take my personal information and put it onto the internet because, oh, by the way, I have a family and their safety becomes at stake when you do that. And I, you know, the, the response has been from the community has been, well, I thought Elon was for free speech. I thought this was a platform that you could say anything you want. Now he doesn't want to say, now he doesn't like free speech because it's, it's the thing that's after him. And it's like, you know, there's a difference between I want to express my opinion and you don't get to put my personal information on the internet. I feel like we can have that line. Can't we have that line? I mean, I don't, even the most ardent free speech people would agree with the rules that say like, you can't just walk into a crowded room and say fire. Right. Like that is, that has been a thing for a very long time. And I don't think it's any real difference. Like that's not free speech. You're not expressing an opinion. That's, that's what I don't understand. Like, to, maybe this is my own personal um, interpretation of what free speech is meant for, mm-hmm. but it's meant to express some sort of opinion. So, like, here's the coordinates from the plane. Okay, why? If you just right. want to prove that Elon is flying all over the place and he's terrible with carbon and stuff like that, you could just be like, you know, Total he miles. flew to this city. Yeah. Like, you know, city's a big place. Yeah. Like if it's probably has a spot for a private plane, it's probably big enough that it's not like you could be somewhat vague and still get your point across. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just, I think he's kind of getting, uh, kind of getting rough rep. The only thing that I thought was a particular note and why it made its way into Ask Noah is, so Mastodon has been kind of a central figure in this whole fiasco, right? Because Mastodon is the platform that people are looking to and going, well, what else out there is there other than Twitter? And so people quickly arrive at Mastodon. Mastodon had an account on Twitter, and so far as I understand it, didn't actually tweet any sort of personal information. They just simply tweeted a link to Elon Jet on Mastodon, which then had the information available on Mastodon, not on Twitter. And so to ban the Mastodon account, I thought, was maybe a little bit of a stretch. I mean, I get it. You don't want people leaving your platform or whatever. And I also, I can kind of follow the logic that why should Elon Musk be paying and financially supporting a platform for people to kind of come after him. So, I mean, I, 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 I can see it either way, but I, 
overall, I, I thought it was it was a bit kind of blown out of proportion, although I am happy to see that Mastodon, I think five minutes ago, people didn't know what the word Mastodon or Activity Pub was, and now it seems like that is a every other day thing in national news we're talking about it. So, I mean, thanks, Elon. I mean, we got that going for us. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I do not think that it's okay, like posting information as to where to get damaging material mm-hmm. is is still like that's that i still feels like a line to me like yeah he didn't if it was i i understand that there are there are a bunch of um other incidences out there where people are like oh i tried to post a, a link to mastodon and i can't and it's violating twitter service like i kind of followed that somewhat closely i understand those sorts of things uh people being unhappy about that but i don't believe that it's okay like free speech is fine in terms of like again you're not expressing an opinion you are linking out to somebody to form a lynch mod like you're not actually like what's the point yeah yeah like i don't understand like what are you expressing here with by by providing this information like the whole point of free speech is to exchange ideas and debate things and you know of course, I'm talking in the ideal world. Right. But like, what is what did you think was going to happen to a man that has has been polarized? And this is not me being like, yay, Elon. I I don't really care that much, to be honest. Yeah. But it's more like if you took anybody like uh, Nancy Pelosi or Donald Trump or whatever who are polarizing where one side or the other has really ardent supporters that are that find these people abhorrent. What do you think is going to happen if you're actually posting somewhat real-time information about where these people have been? You know what? 95% of the time, Steve, I bet nothing. Then 5% of the time, I bet something really, really bad. That's yeah, my guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's no. just, I, I, I think that it was a jerk move by the Mastodon people. That Like, what yeah. exactly... Like you stuck your finger in the giant's eye, and then you complain <laughs> about it when they smacked you. Yeah. Like, what did you expect to happen? No. And <sighs> really, he hit me because I did bad to them. Really, tr- truthfully, <laughs> he just—I mean—he suspended them long enough that he made a policy change. So, anyway, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll keep an eye on what uh, what Mr. Musk is doing and how it progresses forward. But uh, just thought we'd cast a little light and and, and continue to talk about it. Um, Pine64 has an update, so it's a long update. I'd invite you to go to pine64.org and get the entire news update for yourself. I will tell you that my takeaway is Pine Tab 2. That is my takeaway. That is my love. Um, I have always wanted a Pine Tab. I have the Pine Book. I have the Pine Book Pro. I have the Pine Phone. I have the Pine Phone Pro. I've been an, an avid supporter of everything Pine. I think that you get a tremendous value for the cost. And the Pine uh, Tab 2 is, I was hoping for a Pine Pro or a Pine Tab Pro, where it doesn't look like we're going to get that, but we are going to get a second iteration of the Pine Tab 2. It will feature a foldable keyboard that also acts as a protective case, has two Type-C ports on it. Of course, it can come apart so you can hack it and do all of the things. Looks like a really cool uh, project and has shot to, to, to one of the top of my list of things that I want to take a look at. So continue to follow that. Again, I would invite you to get the entire news segment uh, directly from Pine64.org.
Christmas is just around the corner, and every year we do a Christmas gift rundown. How to shop for the geeks in your life. And so this year uh, is no different. We're going to give you some of the gifts that you might consider getting the geek in your life. I want to start with number 10. The, uh, number 10 is the M5 stick. You can learn more at M5 Stack. Dot com rather shop at m5stack.com and the m5 stick is a uh, fantastic uh, little device. It's an ESP32 Pico uh, D4 with Wi-Fi. It's an upgrade from the original M5 Stick C with a bigger screen, portable, easy-to-use, open-source IoT development board. This is a tiny device that will enable you to realize your ideas, enrich your creativity, speed up your IoT prototyping. I'll tell you what we're doing with them. We're using them in our church as a tally light. So we use a, an open-source program called Tally Arbiter. We tie the M5 Stick and we just tell the screen, turn red when the camera shot is active. Turn green when the camera shot is clear. And it's a very inexpensive way to take regular consumer grade cameras and add the tally light notifications uh, uh, ability. So a very cool thing, just a couple of bucks, less than $20, and you could have one of these or get one of these again for the geek in your life. Um, Steve, you ever heard of the uh, M5? I suppose you would say no, but I, I, I play with the ESP32. Uh, actually, I have heard of the M5. Um, I wasn't sure whether it had Bluetooth, though, because that would be kind of an interesting thing because the... Uh, the new thing that you can do is you can use the ESP32s as a Bluetooth relay. So okay. um, that can be very handy. I could see that being very useful for, for several things, but I couldn't find any information whether that's supported on the, the M5 or not. One eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Wayne from Grand Forks, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. It is an absolute pleasure to talk to you once again. I have Home Assistant up and running in my house. Okay. And I also have an instance of Pycroft up and running. And I was wondering about a if there was a, <clears throat> a whole home audio setup that I could broadcast uh, notifications over through Pycroft. Ooh, good question. Steve, what are your thoughts? Hmm. So are you talking about asking Pycroft to, to kind of echo some sort of uh, notification across multiple smart speakers or like how, how are you, what were you envisioning? Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to use Pycroft uh, uh, to when a notif when a, a automation goes off, I want to, I want Pycroft to speak a notification, but I want it right now. It's relegated to just one room of my house. I want it all over my house and in all the rooms. Do you have Pycroft in multiple rooms? No, I just have one one box sitting downstairs in my basement. Do you have speakers in all of your rooms? Like, how, how did you envision uh, sending the notification all over the place? Well, yeah, that was that was uh, the point of my call was to get some ideas on how to do that. Okay. No, I wasn't sure, right? Like, some people have uh, existing infrastructure. They're like, how do I make this work and other people are are just saying i have a thing i don't have it plugged into anything yet what what should i do and so that's kind of the angle we're taking right um there's a couple ways you can do this so um if you have if you have speakers in every room or if you've got some computers in every in, in rooms there are there's a bunch of ways you you could do this it's it becomes a little bit difficult um, from the point of view of, of uh, how do I say this, it, coordination. 
So one of the things you could do is use something like Volumio that could send uh, like pre-recorded notifications over the um, over your various interfaces throughout the house, right? And what you would do is you would have Pycroft basically because it's a bunch of Python and it can do basically whatever you tell it to do. When Pycroft receives a notification from Home Assistant on the bus, however you're capturing that, it can then turn around and, and say, hey, Volumio, go play whatever the notification is. And then Volumio can help handle uh, sending the audio across multiple rooms. Right now, the Mycroft project doesn't really handle multi-room audio because it's it's the thought of it is like, hey, we have a speaker type like lady tube thing. And so there isn't currently a thought of how do I coordinate across multiple rooms in the same house necessarily, because it's just not the focus where we're at. Um, Noah, do you have some sort of thoughts on how you might handle that? So I do it with Volumio mostly because it supports different zoning. And so I can have uh, like four Volumio controllers each on a separate amp, each in a different part of the house. And then through Home Assistant, I can either tell them I want all of these Volumio boxes to run this particular playlist and it'll play in all of the rooms, or I can split them out and say only this one, only that one. Um, so so that that's kind of the route that I've gone. Um, but yeah, there's no, I wouldn't say there's a wrong way to do it. Yeah. Um, lots of people don't use audio. They use a visual cue for this. So I know tons and tons of people who are using some sort of, so that you might use Pycroft to then say, go switch on a bunch of uh, lights. So for example, the most common one is uh, for garbage day and people have basically recycled the same project to to help them with garbage day. And essentially what it is is like, if the day of the week comes and I haven't gone into the garage or where, wherever, however you're triggering that sensor, then turn this light red. And then when I see these lights that are red around, whether it's under the counter, wherever I look the most often, then I know, oh yeah, I gotta go put out the garbage. Like that's a pretty common use case that, that I have encountered as opposed to sending a, an audio notification because it's easier to coordinate um, simple color changes of like a smart bulb, for example, or an LED strip than it is to try and get audio everywhere in your house. Does that make sense, Wade? Yeah, yeah. That, that uh, The Volumio uh, solution is uh, is one that is pretty interesting to me because there are times where I don't want the notification to play in every room, you know, in case I have exactly. guests at the house. I don't want... I don't want a notification. No, your dryer is done playing in the, the guest bedroom. So mm-hmm. uh, th- there's a home assistant plugin for Volumio. There is. Yep. It's just, it has a native integration. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Perfect. That answers my question. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks for the call. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Second on our list is the Pine Time smartwatch. This is $25.99 available from pine64.com. Features an IPS capacitance touchscreen, uh, 240 by 240. My son has one of these and I have to tell you, I am blown away for the cost that you spend for the $26 that just $27 that you spend on this device. It is is incredible. And the fact that you can flash your own open source operating system right on it is fantastic. And so if you're looking for a nice, inexpensive gift that will provide loads and loads of fun, is completely hackable, totally open source, and you're supporting an awesome company, the Pine Time Smartwatch, available $26.99 from Pine64.com. Uh, 
Next on our list is the Electronics Lab. So this is called the Plays Engineering uh, Educational Experiment Connection Kit. And essentially, it's it's this, this has been around in one iteration or another for a long time. And it essentially is a like a cardboard board with a bunch of little springs and there's a number of different circuits and electronic components that are available on this board. And then what you do is you take the little wires and bend the springs and insert the wire and then you can instantly make a connection from say a battery pack to an LED or maybe a piezo buzzer or a switch and kids can start to experiment and learn what the device, what these actual individual electronic components do. And so you can teach your kids to go from the kind of kid that walks into a store and says, what can the store give to me or build for me into what can I build using something? So the Electronics Lab 6995, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. The Plantronics Blackwire 3220. This is only $36.95, and what I love about this is it's a high-quality USB headset, completely natively compatible with Linux. And so whether it's you're doing Zoom calls with your work or you're trying to communicate long distance with family, this is a nice, easy way, something that you can just have in the backpack, pull out, have by the desk, you can plug it in, it gives you single-side um uh, audio as well as a drop down little boom you're going to sound really good it has a little mute button on it as well as a volume control on the switch so it's the Plantronics Blackwire 3220 for 3695 another one we've talked about this on the show before it's the Go Control Hub Z1 4379 it's available on Amazon.com and this is going to get you if you want to get into home automation and doing lighting control this is really the best one because it's going to give you both Zigbee and Z-Wave all on one stick. It's the controller that both Steve and I have in our homes uh, and highly recommend you pick one up if you're looking to get into home automation. The Anchor IQ. This is $59.99. It is a 65-watt Type-C charger. It is the smallest Type-C charger I think I've ever encountered in my life. It's just a tiny little cube and produces 65 watts or capable of supporting up to 65 watts of power delivery, which means you're going to be able to power uh, even your higher-end laptops. Um, and at $59.99 is a very inexpensive Type-C power brick. I have uh, six of these that I have at my little charging station that I built. Highly recommend you check this out. Uh, now we get to the Odroid. And the Odroid H3, I wanted to have Steve talk a little about this. These are really cool devices. Tell me about this and what you're doing with it. So the Odroid is basically like a a NUC competitor. So for the people that are familiar, Odroid is normally plays inside of the ARM arena, and that was kind of like their bread and butter for a long time. The Odroid H3, if you're familiar with uh, Jupiter Broadcasting, they, they've talked about it a little bit as well. It's an x86 base, which makes it a really good alternative for the NUC-based things. They come in under 10 watts. So if you're looking for something low-powered, um, as in low-power draw, they're pretty good. In terms of the, the CPU power, they've got a good four cores to them, and they're pretty solid in that regard. Uh, some of the stuff that I, I like about this is it's got some headers on it similar to the Raspberry Pi, so you can do things like hooking up uh, an external LCD, like one of the tiny LCDs to give you status of, of the computer or anything that you want. Um, you can program it in Python. There's a Python interface and uh, entries on their wiki page for it. Ultimately, what I really like about this guy is that he's got two 2.5 gig NICs. 
It can handle two SATA ports. So it's got two SATA ports on it. And on the bottom side, there's an NVMe slot. So you can have up to three drives just on this thing alone. And it can handle up to 64 gigs of RAM. So I found it to be a, a really neat little device. And I plan on getting several more of them because for the power and the wattage draw, they are kind of ideal for several tasks, such as um, doing video encoding with Plex or Jellyfin because they handle quick sync. So that uh, negates the idea of needing an external graphics card to give you some oomph. And uh, I know we're running low on time, but I just really love this little device. I, I've seen that uh, the benchmarks show that it can handle up to eight streams of 1080, uh, sorry, 18 streams of 1080p off of Plex at a single time together before it starts to break a sweat. So it's a really capable little device for $129. You got to add the RAM and a hard drive of some sort, but I found it to be uh, a quite a useful little device more so than, than the Raspberry Pi because it's got about the, you know, it's got a little more power draw, but it also has significant more oomph behind it. And so it, it really walks that balance for me. That's awesome. Our uh, uh, number two on the list is the Creality Ender uh, 3, and specifically the Creality Ender 3S1. So this is a little bit higher of a price point, and, and so you need to have a little bit more of a budget at $479.99. But what I like about the Creality Ender in specific is it has a movable base plate, and so it will actually make some of those adjustments for you, whereas some of the lower-end 3D printers will not. And finally, rounding out our list is the Steam Deck, and depending on which model you get, it'll range from $399 to $649. You can learn more at store.steampower.com what's nice is here you're going to allow somebody to have a arch linux box something they can buy get out of the store plug it in and just play games entirely powered by linux all of these things support the linux and open source community so we highly recommend you shop from a list like this you will have all of the links to all of these items at podcast.asknoahshow.com we're back next tuesday at 6 p.m central asknoahshow.com have a good week